hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History. Uh, my name is Peter Christian Agner, your host. Today we'll be talking to Terry Galway about his new book, Machine Made, Tammany Hall and the Creation of Modern American Politics. Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Um, it's a ple- it was a pleasure reading your book. Uh, as I was just saying, last week we, had, uh, we were talking with Mason Williams about the great anti-Tammany crusader, Fiora LaGuardia. Um, and uh, your book takes a, a bit of a different uh, approach. So why don't you uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got to the project? Well, sure. Uh, I'm a, a, a professor, of, a, assistant professor of history at Kane University in New Jersey, uh, sort of a late-in-life PhD. I, I uh, got my degree in 2012 at, uh, in my late 50s. Uh, and uh, this book was really an outgrowth of my dissertation research. Uh, I've always been interested in Tammany Hall, uh, mainly because I've always been interested in New York politics. I grew up on Staten Island in the 1960s and 70s uh, when Tammany was, you know, dead and buried. Uh, but uh, you know, grew up in an Irish Catholic. Uh, Household where you know the names of uh, people like Al Smith uh, were revered, and um, you know later on in in life uh, in the late 70s and 80s, I was lucky enough to become a political reporter in New York, and then through the 1990s. So uh, I've always had this fascination for New York politics, and uh, when it came time to uh, choose a dissertation topic. Uh, well, you know, I had been thinking a lot about Tammany and thinking that surely uh, the, the, its its negative reputation was so uh, deeply felt. The reporter in me decided, well, you know what, it has to be more complicated than that. So, so I sort of began to become skeptical, frankly, of the LaGuardias of the world and their worldview of of what Tammany was about, uh, and and reading some of the what I think were very preachy uh, and almost hysterically anti-Tammany histories that were out there. That's what led me to believe that there was another side to the story, and it hadn't been told. And so uh, I did that as my dissertation, and. Uh, Sort of rewrote it quite a bit, and uh, and it was published uh, by uh, Norton, and and it's out there now, and uh, you know uh, other historians are welcome to tear it apart. Although I'd rather they didn't, but uh, you know it, it's it's out there for uh, you know as a countervailing view to what most people feel about Tammany Hall. Right, right. Well, I, I, um, you make the point that that Tammany was more than just a you know a, a corrupt. Uh, organization in a corrupt era during in one city during the nation's history that it that it became a national symbol for urban government and and beyond that all that urban government stood for you know in a, in a couple of weeks I'm going to be talking with Steve Kahn who just uh, wrote a, a wonderful new book on the anti the anti-urban tradition in America which is which is deep and wide and old um, uh, so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, this caricature of uh, of Tammany or or what Tammany as a symbol meant? Well, I mean, as a symbol, Tammany was uh, perceived not just in New York, as you suggest, but it was a national symbol of corrupt government. Now, what 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 did corruption mean? Well, it meant you know graft, of course. It meant uh, patronage. Uh, it meant uh, inefficiency. Uh, it meant uh, friends helping friends. It meant uh, hiring people who were unqualified, you know, padding the payroll, etc. And of course, Tammany was responsible for all of those things. I mean, particularly, of course, you know, the face of Tammany Hall, the people that most people, uh, the, the person rather that most people associate with Tammany Hall was uh, Boss Tweed, who was the head of this organization, which really, you know, Tammany Hall is sort of shorthand for the Democratic Party in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, Tweed uh, is is the poster boy of urban corruption. Well, Tweed was the boss of Tammany Hall for just a couple of years during the Civil War and during Reconstruction, and he's overthrown by 1871. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, the longest reigning boss of Tammany Hall, and mind you, a boss of this organization is unelected, except actually not not elected by the populace or even 
the Democratic voters, but chosen by the party. He's basically the party chairman. Well, the longest-serving boss of Tammany was this guy named Charles Francis Murphy, served from 1902 to 1924. He's the guy who mentored Al Smith and Robert Wagner, two of the great liberals in New York history. Smith is arguably the greatest governor New York has ever had. Wagner, arguably one of the greatest greatest senators New York has ever had. And that's saying something because New York's had an awfully large number of good senators. So uh, I think that, um, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, that Tammany, as you suggest, Tammany also stood for government in cities. And if you read the critics of the time, you know, there was this real anti-urban bias in a lot of the criticism of Tammany. There was a lot of anti-immigrant bias. There was a lot of anti-poor bias. And there was a lot of anti-Catholic, anti-Irish bias. bias. So to me, Tammany came to stand for not just bad government and corrupt government. Tammany came to stand for government by strangers, government by people who aren't really Americans, government by people who had hyphens in their identities, as if Anglo-Saxon was not hyphenated. So it, 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 the, the hysteria over Tammany, I think, was the product of, of demographic change in the United States. It was, uh, and it stood for government by others. And I think that accounts for the over-the-top criticism that you see of Tammany in newspapers in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yes. Uh, um, well, that's um, very interesting. And I, I, um, um, uh, I think it's maybe important we should, we should uh, talk a little bit more about, you know, this, this is, you make the uh, get our sort of basics down here, um, talking about patronage and things like that. Tammany is also um, an institution that, um, like a lot of the machines, uh, is not quite aligned with, you know, the, the press is, is very anti-machine. Um, the press also sort of represents different institutions in the society, right? And where Tammany is sort of seen culturally aligned with uh, these immigrants and these workers, um, uh, you talk about Murphy and, and Al Smith and these people are, you know, uh, Smith is the one who begins the, the new deal realignment, you know, by bringing in these, uh, immigrants and workers and people that have felt excluded from the political process. Absolutely. And you know, there was a time in New York history where, uh, immigrants, uh, were coming in by the tens of thousands, uh, every month. Uh, and that was the Irish famine from 1845 to 1851. Uh, before that, no one would have ever necessarily described New York as a city of immigrants. It certainly was a diverse city, uh, more, much more so, say, than uh, Boston or, or Chicago. Uh, you know, New York, by its, even under the Dutch, New York was a diverse kind of city. So uh, as these immigrants are coming in, they are poor. Many of them, contrary to what people think, many of them didn't speak English. They spoke Irish. Um, they had nothing but the shirts on the back. They had just fled a country in which the choice was you either leave or you starve to death. So these were immigrants unlike any other immigrants who had come into New York, uh, and they were Catholic. So they were despised, and it led to you know the nativist know-nothing movement of the 1850s. Uh, and, and the nativist movement was supported by the main opposition party at the time, the Whig Party. And then when the Whig Party disappeared, it be, the Republican Party picked up this nativist streak. Uh, well, the Democratic Party uh, under Tammany uh, chose another way of dealing with these immigrants. They said, basically, we're going to help them. And they're going to repay us with their votes. It's a very simple calculation. We are not talking, we're talking about brass knuckle practical politics here. You know, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. I know people are shocked when they discover that politics can work that way. But yeah. it does. And it does today. And it, after all, it was Ronald Reagan who ran for president in 1980 by asking the following question. Are you better off than you were four years ago? And people said, no, we're not better off. We, yeah. want, we want to be better off, so we're going to vote for this guy. Well, that's what the immigrants said. <laughs> you know, we want to be better off. Who is helping us? 
Well, well that's very, he was. Yeah, it's a very interesting notion because it, it, you know, in many ways cuts against this this belief that we have about our system or what our system should be. Uh, you know, you talk about in, in the early parts of your book, you talk about how Tammany, uh, you talk about what you think Tammany brought to modern politics. And, you know, the early vision of the people who were in charge, the minority of people who were in charge in the days of the early republic, um, had this vision of America as a republic and what a republic was supposed to be was this place of, uh, you use the phrase, uh, dispassionate analysis and objective disinterest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the founders in the Federalist Papers, you read that, that you know, parties are not supposed to, parties are factions and factions are evil and the pursuit of self-interest, which is, you know, what else is democracy but interest groups jockeying for representation of their interest. Right. Um, exactly. And yet there's this feeling that that is that that that's crass. It's selfish. It's not the way politics is or should be when when in fact it's arguably always been that way. You know, I, I'm reminded uh, as you were speaking, I was reminded of a, of a great scene in a William Kennedy novel uh, called uh, Roscoe, in which he's dealing with the Albany machine, which, of course, is not Tammany. In fact, the Tammany and the Albany machine sometimes didn't get along, but it was sort of a miniature version of Tammany. It was certainly Irish-controlled. But the, the main figure in uh, in the novel, Roscoe, who is, a, you know, sort of a... Uh, local uh, power broker, a ward healer, one might say. Uh, at one point, uh, he's, uh, Kennedy has him in a soliloquy, and he's in essence saying, you know, I know all of these ideals. I know that, you know, politics is supposed to be moral, and, and, and I'm looking around for all that morality, and I just don't see it. And he's meaning that not as a criticism of his fellow party members. He's looking at the businessmen. He's looking at, uh, you know, the elites, too, and the way they operate in and around Albany. And he's looking for this great ideal republic of disinterest, and he doesn't see it. So I think that uh, Tammany also, uh, not too many people, not many Tammany people read the Federalist Papers, I'm sure. Uh, And and I'll confess that I have not read them all. Uh, But I know this ideal republic that Alexander Hamilton and others envisioned. And that's nice. uh, But, you know, Tammany had to deal with the real problems of real people at a time when if you were unemployed, you starved. Uh, if you starved, you probably died. Uh, if you were a father uh, and you died, you left be and you left behind a family. That family might get split up uh, by private charities because that's the only charity there was. Uh, there was nothing, nothing resembling the social welfare system that we have today. It was all about rugged individualism. One of the founding myths of the republic uh, that um, you know we can all basically pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, Robert Wagner, a proud son of Tammany Hall, you know, addressed that once uh, in speaking with a friend of his. He said, you know, we have this myth that um, you know through hard work. Uh, you can you can make something of yourself merely through applying yourself and through hard work. And he told a friend, you know, that's bunk. He said, for every one person who does pull themselves up, a thousand are destroyed. And right. now that might be a slight exaggeration, but you get Wagner's point. And I think that that also was very much an ethos of Tammany, is that, uh, okay, yeah, there are people who are going to make something of themselves, but what about those who cannot? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, um, I have read the Federalist Papers. Uh, I've uh, written a little bit about the Federalist Papers, and um, uh, we have this notion that, they're, that these are sort of highly realistic uh, documents, but they're, they're creatures of their time, um, however uh, democratic they were in their time. Um, and there's a slight sort of utopian streak to that. I mean, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm taken by this argument. I mean, um, uh, it's also, I think, something that, you know, it's not just about these uh, corporate elites or other people, but we want our own interests represented in government, right? And this is your point about Tammany, that, that you, you know, the subtitle of your book, The Creation of Modern American Politics, you argue that, that Tammany um, prepared the way for modern liberalism by encouraging people to look to accessible political figures for protection from laissez-faire capitalism and protection from the contempt of moral reformers, moral reformers who were often, um, uh, you know, of a socioeconomic, of a different socioeconomic uh, caste who were really trying to regulate uh, the poor um, 
and saw the poor. You have this section where you talk about, you know, the very familiar language, uh, you know, the, that Catholics were seen as, as poor in their day because they were lazy and they were lazy because they were because uh, of their culture and their culture was shaped by their religion, their Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And, and this was this was to ex- this would explain their situation. And, um, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the view of Thomas Malthus and these other classical liberal economists, if they just, you know, if they just pull themselves up by their bootstrap, none of that would uh, uh, none of that would be the case. That's right, um, so, and, and Tammany was not in the business of judging people's morals. Uh, one of the one of the characters, one of uh, who I wished uh, I'd been able to make a bigger character in my book, Big Tim Sullivan, because he's an interesting guy. Uh, Big Tim Sullivan was uh, a product of Irish poverty, uh, Irish American uh, poverty, and in the Five Point section, his uh, parents, I believe, were famine immigrants, but perhaps not. I could I could be misremembering, but in any case, he grew up poor. One of his memories is that he never had any shoes. Uh, and every year at his clubhouse, uh, once a year was shoe giveaway day, where he literally would give away shoes to anybody who came along. And he once said that I don't see his, uh, almost an exact quote, I, I don't feed a man because he is good. I feed a man because he's hungry, you know? And that yeah. sort of, uh, that sort of approach to, uh, giving out charity, if you will, or giving up government, giving out government entitlements, uh, was very opposite to the, kinds of charity that most poor people uh, had to subject themselves to in the 19th century, where you had somebody literally judging whether you were worthy or not of assistance. And if you would decide, yeah. and, if, and if that person, that visitor, as often they were called, if that visitor decided that, you know what, you know, you drink too much, so yeah. you're not getting aid, uh, well, then you didn't get aid. Yeah, Walter Tratner and Michael Katz and, and other folks have written very well on this, the, this very ancient no- notion that's usually tied up with uh, a severe form of Protestantism about uh, the deserving and the undeserving poor. Exactly. Um, and most tend to fall. No, most tended to fall in the uh, the latter category. Yes. Um, well, uh, so why don't you? Uh, why don't we uh, sort of uh, be, uh, start uh, rolling through these chapters here and talking about the early days, uh, the arrival of the Irish? Uh, I mean, Tammany exists. The the as you said before, Tammany is the um, there's the Tammany Society and Tammany Hall, mm-hmm. and and Tammany essentially is the is the Democratic Party in New York or Manhattan, um, very important in the city, um, the most important machine, and um, or in the post uh, unification days, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but uh, when the Irish show up, uh, Tammany is not uh, the Tammany that we know, right? So could you talk a little bit about that story? Well, sure. I mean, Tammany, uh, in you know, before the uh, the, the Irish uh, famine immigration of the 1840s, Tammany actually some Tammany figures even kind of uh, uh, were nativist. Uh, Tammany, yeah. in its early days, was an organization of native-born Protestants. Uh, it was not the immigration-loving institution that it became. Uh, it was uh, at its roots, it was a private social club. Uh, that uh, was founded uh, in the early days of the Republic. It was sort of transformed by Aaron Burr and others into a political voting bloc. Uh, this is, and then so this private organization called the Society of St. Tammany, named after a Native American, uh, in essence took over the Democratic Party in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was not a dominant uh, faction uh, in the 1830s. Uh, or so, but uh, by the time uh, the Civil War came around, uh, you know, Tammany was pretty much ensconced in, in power, and the Democratic Party was ensconced in power in New York as a result of its willingness to to uh, deal with these hundreds of thousands of immigrants, uh, as opposed to the Whig and then Republican strategy of rejecting them and ostracizing them, and in fact denying their ability to participate in uh, the American experiment. I mean, they felt that these Catholics were simply incapable of understanding Protestant ideas of liberty. And, you know, as you know, American, uh, the American political discourse at the time was very much, uh, religion was very much a part of it, as one would argue it is uh, today. Uh, and, and back then, people, uh, many people uh, in authority thought of 
American concepts, not not as secular, but actually as as laden with Protestant values. And Catholics, never mind Jews or Muslims uh, or anyone, uh, they, they simply couldn't understand them. So, uh, so that was the attitude that uh, the nativists had for the Catholics and the Republic, uh, rather the Democrats in Tammany said, well, you know what? If again, as I said before, if if we are welcoming to them, and you know, you know whether they were doing this out of the goodness of their hearts or whether they were calculating, it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think anyway. Uh, what matters is that the people who needed help got help, and what a surprise! They then rewarded their helpers with votes on election day. Uh, you know, again, people are shocked by this, but uh, to me, it I am not so shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about this as, an, as a new social contract, um, you know, uh, following the following the logic that you want your representatives in government to represent your interests when they re- reward your you uh, your vote with uh, with <laughs> with with things uh, right. with uh, some form of welfare, um, whatever form that takes. Uh, uh, that's essentially what we're saying we want our system to do, right? Right, right. And it's challenging the idea that that there is this notion of disinterest because this notion of disinterest is being held mostly by civic elites who I think probably really did believe that they came around to their political views because that they, they, they were so smart and so wealthy that they could put, that they didn't have interests right. because they already established but without realizing, as perhaps most of us would realize, that of course they had interests, and that they were, they were, they, in their mind, the common good, and their interests just happened to coincide. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, well, so you you have this you have this other very interesting argument um, that that struck me. Um, you talk about how this, the famine was something that had, and I and I. I believe that you know I've I've read uh, references to to studies on this. I think you're on pretty firm footing here that the famine had a generations long impact on thinking. You write that it it, it um, even for the Irish or Catholics who had never set foot uh, in these Catholic lands, um, it, it it gave a political and cultural framework uh, to interpret power, uh, specifically in New York and and maybe beyond. Um, that uh, the famine, uh, you, you talk about the sort of transatlantic uh, phenomenon, uh, challenging uh, you know this 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 other transatlantic narrative out there, this Anglo-Saxon narrative about republicanism and 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 what you know government should be and and who was capable of of participating in government, right? This 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 uh, this view that's held as much by the by the founding elite in the United States as, as abroad. Um, so could you, you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I mean, the famine, for those who, who don't uh, realize the centrality of the famine, or who've heard about it but really don't know anything about it, I mean, the famine, uh, the poor Irish, and most of them were Catholic. Remember, they've had their lands dispossessed by the English settlers, most of whom are Protestant. Uh, but the vast majority of the island, 91% of its 8 million people, are Catholic. Uh, most of them have been, as I said, dispossessed. They work as tenant farmers or laborers, and all they really have is potatoes. I mean, that, that is, you know, I mean, it's stereotyped, but it's also amazing to, to consider that the average uh, male uh, farm worker in Ireland in 1846 or so ate something like 12 to 13 pounds of potatoes a day. All of the other crops were uh, sent off, exported, uh, or used to pay the rent. So, but the potatoes were easy to grow. Uh, and um, the, the, the population became dependent on them. So when the crop failed in 45 and 46 and 47, people started to die. And uh, meanwhile, food under the principles of free market laissez-faire economics, the food in Ireland was being exported. Uh, the British government refused to intervene. They felt, of course, that this would be intervening literally in the laws of God to to prevent the market from from following its own morals so you see there was not there wasn't a famine in ireland even though we all refer to it as a famine it was actually just a failure of a single crop so so you you had this phenomenon of powerless impoverished people starving to death in a land of plenty 
And I'm arguing, uh, and, and the government then, when they finally, when, when the government does try to offer assistance, uh, there is, uh, in some cases, private charities, Protestant charities, asking the recipients to convert to Protestantism in order to receive relief. <laughs> and then there was this idea that um, the, the, the head of British Relief actually said that the problem in Ireland is not starvation, it's the lack of virtue among right. the people. Right. So the Irish picked up on that. And when they, they understood that if you are without power, you can starve. And if you starve, you can die. So, you know, in some people, at one point, one of my favorite politicians, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, once said that one of the tragedies of Irish politics, of Irish American politics, was that once the Irish achieved power, that they didn't know what to do with it. And uh, with all due respect to the senator, uh, I disagree with that. Once they achieved power, they had power. And they knew what it was like to be powerless. And achieving power was in some ways an end unto itself. Because it, you know, when you didn't have power, you starved. Right. Uh, they didn't have power in Ireland, and they starved. So I think that, that this, this uh, almost um, this amazing climb that the Irish make uh, from the ghettos of the Five Points and from you know the ghettos of, of South Boston to you know to positions of political leadership out of the famine generation. I mean, it's not it's it's not uh, without context. That context being, they knew what it was like to be powerless. They knew what it was like to have their poverty judged as lack of character, and that when they got that power, they were not going to do it that way. So I think that it is impossible to understand. Irish machine politics without understanding that it was founded by their experience of powerlessness, hunger, cultural alienation uh, in Ireland. And that was transported uh, on those coffin ships across the Atlantic. And so when they get here and they hear politicians in the States challenging their virtue uh, saying that they are, you know, alien and can't be absorbed into the culture, uh, you know, condemning them for their religion. They're hearing the same conversation they heard in Ireland. The difference being is that this time there were people who were willing to help them. Who are they? The political machines. Right, right. And they're incredibly effective. I, 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 um, I, I, um, well, I got interested in, in, in this book uh, because I'm, I'm writing, as you know, I'm writing biography of Moynihan, and um, my second chapter sort of um, talks about the, 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 the bookend to your book in a way. It's, it's the end of Tammany. In, in writing this uh, chapter about Moynihan and the end of Tammany, I came across Stephen Erie's book of, of uh, years ago, Rainbow's End. Yes. Um, and to your point about the Irish taking power uh, or, or realizing the importance of power after the famine, um, Erie says that in his estimation, uh, about a dozen of the 20 largest cities in the north in the later uh, in the mid 1800s and, and later 1800s were dominated by the Irish or that the Irish climbed to power in about a dozen of the 20 largest cities, which is, in, which is incredibly, uh, and, 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 you know, it goes to sort of explaining why so much of your, uh, so much of our association with Tammany and the machines is caught up with the Irish. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I think that if pe people have tried to explain why the Irish succeeded in politics and, and Moynihan is brilliant on that topic as well. He, he, he sees how, uh, he compares how, uh, uh, village life in in Ireland was similar to uh, the, the discipline the discipline of political life in the United States, and there's this, is a certain amount of stereotyping here that the Irish are gregarious, and of course they many of them speak English, but not all of them. Um, and, and there's a certain sort of Irish style of politics, and I think all of that is true. But I also think that there's a deep burning uh, in the Irish character, a, a, a burning for power. Uh, because of the experience of being without power, um, you know, and they were without power really uh, in in British occupied Ireland, uh, and uh, they simply were not going to allow that to happen in the United States. And happily for them, the United States, you know, despite the nativism and despite the prejudice, uh, because of the vote. Uh, because of the great leveling effect of the vote, the franchise, the Irish were uh, able to uh, to seize power in places uh, where maybe they were not even the majority population, and 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 I think that that's an important 
uh, aspect of this curious development of the Irish takeover of so many cities. Uh, some people see it, uh, as I said, as, as um, some people forget that we're talking about a group that was powerless and that starved and that they just want to let it happen again. Right, right. Um, and, and, well, and, they're, and they're coming here and they're facing, as you said before, um, not just that, it, we're not just talking about some sort of social prejudice that, you know, is sort of inconvenient. Uh, we're talking about, you know, things like property rules um, that are tied to religion and renounce, the renunciations of religion in the way that they were in, uh, in Ireland. And um, uh, uh, you talk about, you know, the uh, public school debate with Bishop Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that period, uh, the the loyalty oaths that um, that's, that that uh, the Clinton and, and others uh, toppled, um, which is part of what uh, uh, drew the, the Irish into politics. Right. Well, the school wars were really important, and I think this is really one of the first books that sort of ties uh, the school wars in New York of the 1840s and Archbishop Hughes to the Tammany. Uh, story as well, and and that is in a nutshell, uh, you have these waves of Catholic uh, children uh, coming into New York, and the public school system at the time was very much a Protestant school system. Although again, the people who ran the schools didn't see it that way; they saw themselves as disinterested, etc. But you know, the the Bible that they read was the Protestant Bible, King James Bible. Uh, history books were given to uh, to students, which can derogatory phrases about our, the Irish and about Catholicism. So uh, Bishop Hughes, who was the, the Catholic Archbishop of the time, actually you know, intervened in New York politics, ran his own slate of candidates to try to persuade the New York power structure to change their curriculum. And uh, eventually, Hughes gave up and started his own Catholic school system, uh, and then that led to this great, uh, uh, this great system of, of Catholic social services in New York and elsewhere, Catholic hospitals, Catholic orphanages, uh, sort of a social welfare system that was created uh, by, by this archbishop. And uh, again, it was, it was, uh, Hughes was trying to, to uh, mobilize the Irish to vote as a bloc, uh, you know, it's a familiar tactic uh, today as it was back then. Uh, yeah. but, 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 but here's the point. When Tammany sees the Irish Catholics voting as a bloc, now there's something they respect. <laughs> and this, all, this occurs all around the same time as the famine. So again, I, I do think that Tammany's reaction to the uh, waves of Catholic Irish, I don't think, frankly, is, is coming from uh, some deep well of humanity. Uh, it was coming from pure calculation. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so uh, we talked about uh, some of this uh, transatlanticism. You talk about, uh, use uh, Maurice uh, Halbach's uh, idea of collective memory here. Um, and you talk a little bit about Daniel O'Connell, um, who people might know for the Catholic Emancipation Movement. And how that uh, the Catholic Association uh, that set up uh, in the, in Ireland, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That the tactics and and the sort of informal welfare system that created are, are directly replicated by Tammany. Yeah, I was I was uh, delighted to to make that connection too, because uh, again, Moynihan and others have, have said, and rightfully so, uh, pointed out first of all that uh, one of the reasons why the Irish would have succeeded almost right away is because one thing that they did have in Ireland was most, most had the vote. Most males over the age of 21 did have the vote and did have the experience of, uh, of uh, mass politics because there was this guy, Daniel O'Connell, who in the 1920s led a campaign to get Catholics the right to sit in parliament and have their full civil rights. So, uh, but one of the ways uh, in which, uh, the O'Connell and his uh, party operated, and I, I looked at the records from the 1920s, and I was just, a, 1820s rather, and I was just astonished. So you have uh, these politicians in Ireland, these Catholic politicians, appealing to the poor Catholics, males, to vote for them. These, remember, Catholics were not allowed in the House of Commons, but they wanted in, but they needed Catholics to vote for them. So uh, there are these letters to Daniel O'Connell and his aide saying, you know, we've got these Farmer Smith or Farmer O'Brien 
you know, would like to vote for us, but he's afraid that if he does, his landlord will evict him. Uh, can we get him some money? Can we get him five pounds? Can we get him? Uh, can we find another place for him? You know. So there's this idea that that um, that the vote really is a transaction. Uh, that uh, and after all, if you are poor, particularly back then with no safety net, but you you're in a democratic system, uh, you do have one thing, and you have the vote. And if you use it in a way uh, to better yourself. Well, then you're doing what Ronald Reagan encouraged us to do. Is, you know, ask yourself the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? And if you, you, know, if you aren't, then vote for me. Well, that's pretty much <laughs> what Daniel O'Connell was saying. You know, um, he, he, he understood that, that the poor, poor person did have this one enormous power that, that, that one can have in a democratic party, in a democratic system that is functioning properly, and that is the vote. So, so there were all of these appeals to O'Connell to give to give money to give money to people who were going to vote for him, and you know so when the Irish came here, uh, that you know that that I think was part of the context of how they looked at Amer- American democracy. Yeah, well, it becomes you know the it's the for for you know people who maybe hear this term patronage and don't really know what what that signifies. I mean, it becomes the the backbone. Um, to the to the to the moral shock of and horror of reformers, the backbone of the machines, because the machines depend on, uh, or the you know the machines depend on being able to deliver jobs to voters, uh, right. patronage, and that and that's not that's not just you know you appointing people to your cabinet because they reward you in terms of donations. It's it's you know the average voter getting you know a job uh, 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 in some capacity in the city with some public works project or something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so uh, okay, so uh, and but there are there's some limits to these sorts of things, which I think you make some reference to, right? I mean, uh, one of the more infamous uh, periods uh, in uh, Tammany history is the or in Irish uh, uh, history in New York is the the. Um, Colored Orphan Asylum, the draft riots of '63, mm-hmm. and you talk about how uh, Dan O'Connell, who was a great uh, abolitionist, uh, those views didn't quite always uh, translate in the United States, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, relations between the Irish and African Americans uh, were, uh, you know, fraught with peril. As you know, what a surprise, frankly. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. uh, nothing unique or shocking there. Uh, but it is true that their great hero, Daniel O'Connell, was one of the great abolitionists in the Atlantic world in the 1840s. Um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the draft riots are a complicated topic. It's really just a, um, you know, a, just less than a chapter in my book. Uh, it's been co- the draft riots have been covered so well by other historians. But one of the things that I found interesting was that, you know, Tammany's, um, Tammany's entry into the draft riots, which occur in 1863, when uh, many Irish Americans, Irish immigrants, many of them famine immigrants or children of famine immigrants, uh, rebel against the idea of fighting a war for the emancipation of blacks uh, because they themselves feel that they have not been uh, treated well by the United States. Uh, And also knowing that people like Teddy Roosevelt's father can buy out of the draft and they can't. So there's a sense that the draft is unfair the worst urban rioting in New York history takes place between January 13th and January 17th in, in 1863. Federal troops are, are a march from Gettysburg to New York to put down the rebellion. But also Tammany, Boss Tweed, uh, comes to the fore uh, because Lincoln says, Lincoln tells New York, okay, we will suspend the draft, but this is just the suspension. In August, we're going to start it up again, and you guys have to figure out how to do it. Uh, and uh, uh, Tweed comes up with this brilliant idea uh, to borrow money, for the city to borrow money to pay the $300 fee to get out of the draft for anyone who wants it. It's a very practical and very expensive solution, but it keeps the peace. And when the draft is resumed in August, thanks to this rather brilliant maneuver by Tammany Hall, uh, there are no other draft rights. Yeah. Well, so since we're talking about Tweed and he is the most notorious figure in Tammany history, maybe you, should, you could tell us a little bit about that and, and the era after Tweed and, and Tammany's response to the Gilded Age. 
Right. Well, after after Tweed, um, <clears throat> sorry, after Tweed uh, is overthrown by Tammany because of his crimes, uh, he's succeeded by the first Irish boss of Tammany Hall, who is a guy called Honest John Kelly, and he got that reputation because he was thought of as a relatively honest public official. And uh, Kelly uh, is the guy who sort of adopts this kind of uh, ward system, very uh, uh, close to home politics. He, he, he is a strict disciplinarian. Uh, he is the guy who uh, meets with his uh, local uh, officials all the time, uh, develops this system of having uh, uh, members of, of the party on every block at every apartment house, uh, and really develops the machine as we have come to know it. Uh, and, you know, a great organizer. Uh, and, you know, Tammany, as we know, it basically takes form after Tweed, which is sort of interesting since Tweed is often thought of as the quintessential Tammany figure. But in fact, Tammany becomes, uh, you know, the machine that we, that we know of after he, he is gone. And mm. Kelly, uh, a fairly respectable sort, um, you know, gets away from the sort of gross uh, corruption of Tweed. Uh, in fact, uh, he is, uh, you know, uh, becomes the controller of, this, of the city and, and is uh, very keen on lowering the taxes of the rich. You know, he's very uh, keen on uh, government efficiency. He wants to make sure that, that government money isn't wasted. He tells one of his allies, Governor Tilden in New York, uh, that he really ought to uh, be careful about how the how the state spends its money. Uh, this is all in reaction to the uh, you know the gross excesses of Tweed. So he yeah. kind of makes Tammany respectable again, and that's kind of one of his great contributions to Tammany history. Hmm. Um, yeah, this is the sort of the Jeffersonian uh, small government yes. conservatism, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, carry us through then. So uh, into the uh, the Gilded Age. Where did, where does Tammany? How do we sort of under, tam, understand Tammany within the context of of uh, rapid the sort of rapid industrialization of uh, New York and the rest of the country? Well, you know, most people would. I think the stereotype is that you know Tammany was part of the Gilded Age. Uh, that they were doing the uh, work of. Uh, of the robber barons, that they were in alliance with them. And there's some merit to that. But there's also some correspondence that I found where uh, Kelly's successor, this guy Richard Croker, who was an Irish immigrant, uh, famine immigrant, as a matter of fact, he left, uh, uh, he and his family left the famine, uh, left Ireland during the famine, where uh, they are siding with railroad workers and, and other uh, working class people in their disputes uh, with the railway magnates of the time. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that that Tammany was uh, in the forefront of, of uh of challenging the Gilded Age in ways uh, that you know, social critics like Henry George were, but I think that they did see the inequities. Part of it is because in 1886, for example, Henry George, who you know was sort of a tax the rich, you know, 99 uh, uh of the time, almost won the mayoral election. The guy who came in third was this young guy named Teddy Roosevelt, and Tammy probably stole that election, frankly. Uh, but they saw that people were uh, people were uh, uh, responding to a class-based message during the Gilded Age. And if you look at the candidates Tammany begins to support during the Gilded Age, and if you look at uh, the the rhetoric, uh, they begin to become a lot more populist. Uh, not William Jennings Bryan populist, but sort of urban populist. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I, you can see Tammany ever so slowly turning a little to the left. Now, people might have, you know, some people who are, might be skeptical said they were just sort of doing that to get votes. Well, yeah, but that's kind of what political parties do. Uh, and, and yeah, they probably still had their alliances with with some of the robber barons. But but I think that Tammany, uh, I, I think, was in some cases, in some disputes in New York, uh, sided uh, were on the side of the workers. Um, you know, which is uh, again a little counterintuitive. But but I don't deny that they certainly had their alliances with uh, you know with with some of the robber barons of the time as well. And, you know, one would argue that Croker, who was the boss at the time, I mean, basically made money hand over fist 
as a result of, of contracts and things like that, and that he arguably was a robber baron. Uh, yeah. and, and there's some merit to that, yes. But this, but this sort of you present this as a sort of uh, preparation period uh, um, into uh, the age of uh, the person we referenced at the beginning of the interview, uh, Charlie Murphy, and uh, the age of Al Smith. Right, and that's where you see Tammany really change. I mean, Murphy takes over in 1902, and. Um, you know, uh, is a respectable sort. I mean, you know, he, he cleans up, again, Croker, Tammany goes through periods of excess, and Richard Croker sort of was more on the boss tweed end of things. Uh, Murphy comes in, he, he stops the corruption or tries to cut down the corruption in the police department. Uh, he, he stops Tammany's, uh, uh, some, the, the, the interaction that some Tammany people are having with possible uh, prostitution and things like that. Uh, but beginning around 1910, actually it is in 1910, that, that this dramatic change takes place in Tammany Hall, and that is Charlie Murphy appoints, because he basically controlled the New York delegation, and he uh, names Robert Wagner, who is 33 years old at the time, German immigrant, to be president of the state senate. And as majority leader in the state assembly, he names uh, 37 or 38-year-old Al Smith, who was a child of the Lower East Side. His father died when he was 13. He had to go out, drop background of school, uh, and was elected to the assembly in 1905 and, and became a star because he actually read legislation, which <laughs> you know, would be a precedent even today. But back then, it was astonishing. So uh, he became a master of the legislative maneuver. Uh, he, uh, he and Wagner both were up from city streets. They understood poverty. They understood the vulnerability of working-class families like their own. And as time would prove, they were determined once they got power, they knew what to do with it. They put power on the side of people like themselves. And Murphy allowed that to happen. And, uh, you know, I would, I make the argument that the true reformers in New York during the Progressive Era were Tammany Hall politicians. Not an argument you, he you hear a lot in most traditional histories. Yeah. No, I, I imagine some people will disagree. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, I think so. And that's okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we were talking before the show about um, uh, Hollenbach and, and um, uh, Joan Weiss and, and these other scholars who who wrote about uh, Wagner and Smith and um, you know it's a it's a, um, a truism in, in the historiography that uh, you know these these early urban liberals um, prepare the way for FDR and the New Deal which is you know considered the you know the big bang in American modern political history um, and uh, the that massive shift uh, within the party system. Um, the massive increase in, in voter turnout, which had dropped by, I think, 40 to 50 percent uh, after the 1890s. Um, uh, more than half of that comes back with uh, Smith's uh, nomination for uh, the presidency. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it encourages FDR, who wasn't who wasn't quite a quite the uh, urban liberal. We remember him uh, uh, to be in his early career. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, gives us the New Deal, and and Wag and and which is as much Wagner's legacy as anybody else's. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I try to point out in the book is that you know, yes, Franklin Roosevelt was really, you know, he, th th this image we have of him as president uh, was not the image that his Albany colleagues had of him in 1911 and 1912 when he was a member of the state Senate. In fact, Roosevelt, uh, as the Ken Burns documentary recently pointed out. Uh, Roosevelt himself, when he was president, looked back in his time in Albany and said, described himself as a mean cuss. And he was a mean cuss, and he was very unpopular with his colleagues. Uh, and he was determined to crush Tammany Hall. But I'm, in my book, I argue that by 1918, uh, Roosevelt is coming around to Tammany to become a virtual ally of Tammany Hall. And his biographers some of them ignore this. Others have to feel they have to confront the evidence that there's Murphy speaking at Tammany Hall. I'm rather there's Roosevelt speaking at Murphy's side in 1917 at Tammany Hall. There's Roosevelt supporting Al Smith for governor, a Tammany man, in 1918. Uh, 
they say, well, of course, Roosevelt had to do this because he, it was the only way he was going to get ahead in New York politics was to make his peace with Tammany. And that is true. But, uh, but I make the argument that it was more than that. I think he concluded that Tammany had, uh, is, was, now on the, was now on the correct side of history. And that Tammany, uh, the Tammany of, of, of 1905, was not the same Tammany uh, in a good way that it was in 1920, and it was producing people like Al Smith and Robert Wagner. So I think he saw a common interest uh, in uh, in modern liberal politics uh, between his viewpoint and Tammany's. And you know that's not uh, you know again that's not a particularly common viewpoint, uh, particularly in the Roosevelt uh, canon. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, James Farley's, uh, who was uh, boss of Tammany at the time and FDR's patron, um, uh, his biographer uh, makes the same point that Farley, who uh, later turns against the New Deal like Smith, um, was actually a very important behind-the-scenes architect of the New Deal. Yep. Uh, and, 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 well, a, and as you said, as you said, I mean, there was no greater architect of the New Deal than uh, in terms of legislation than Robert Wagner. And Robert yes. Wagner was, you know, never lost his uh, loyalty to Tammany Hall. He was a, so you have this. I mean, just to, to look at it this way: when you consider what most people think of Tammany Hall, if you were to tell them, do you know it was a Tammany guy who got Social Security passed? It was a Tammany guy who got the Wagner Act passed. It was yeah. a Tammany yeah. guy who got the first federal housing legislation passed. People would say, well, wait a minute, how is that possible? How could a Tammany guy, I thought they were evil. Well, you know what? Maybe the picture is more complicated than you think. Yeah. Well, um, uh, speaking of uh, of famous uh, Democratic liberals who uh, had a soft spot for Tammany, I think uh, if Daniel Patrick Moynihan was around today, that he would uh, delight in reading this book. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Um, I think I know him well enough by now to to say that with some authority. Yeah. well, so uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time here. Um, why don't you uh, end the interview by telling us about uh, what you're working on now? Well, I'm uh, right now I have my fingers crossed. I'm working on a, a, a book proposal that would sort of be a follow-up to this, but take it more broadly, looking at the uh, Democratic Party uh, during the early 20th century. And it's probably about as specific as I can get because... Beyond that, I don't really have much more to say. (laughs) Well, um, it sounds interesting. Um, I look forward to reading it. Um, And thank you so much for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you.